is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Hey, it's Evan Schinner's WTF Bach. We are live. This is the 50th episode, so if the sound sounds a little different to you, it's because we are going through straight speaking live, no edits. And this lecture is being presented by the first sponsor on this podcast, Tonebase, which is an online music learning platform. The lecture will be presented to all the subscribers of Tonebase on the 27th of May, 2023. I'll read the mission statement of Tonebase now, T-O-N-E-B-A-S-E. Our mission at Tonebase is to democratize access to the highest quality music education, allowing you to learn from and be inspired by the best. At the core of our classical guitar, piano, violin, and cello platforms, you'll find hundreds of lessons, courses, and interviews taught by 100-plus world-class instructors, including Grammy Award winners and teachers from top music schools. So I'm glad that they decided to partner with us. I know them because I have a few lectures myself on the Tonebase platform. So now, when we are ready, you're going to hear Dominic come on and introduce me. I will have some slides that I'm going to be showing the audience, the tone base audience. You, the listeners on the podcast, won't be able to see them, but I think you can very easily imagine them. So when we're ready, we're going to switch over and please enjoy this 50th episode live lecture sponsored by Tonebase. Thanks. Hello everyone, this is Dominic from Tonebase, and I'm so excited for today's live stream on what makes Bach, Bach. Because Evan Schinners is a master of this, he's the founder of the WTF Bach podcast, he's a founder of the, the Bach store, which is this uh, amazing pop-up storefront where Bach is performed. In fact, I think he, I think I read in the New York Times, he gave 30 straight performances, almost five hours a day, in Manhattan playing Bach. So, uh, obviously, Evan is uh, an absolute master of Bach, and I'm going to bring him on the screen just right now. There's Evan for all of us to say hello to. Uh, thank you so much, Evan, for being here today. So, Bach is, gonna, is the topic of today. Uh, we'll have a little Q&A at the end of this presentation, but we have a lot of material to get through. So, I'm going to let Evan take it away and sit back and enjoy. Okay, thanks. So, um, I'd love to do a lecture on maybe how to practice Bach or how to dissect a fugue or whatnot, but I believe that since we have guitarists, cellists, keyboardists, I'm gonna try and stay more philosophical and ask the question we are always trying to answer, which is, why Bach? Why, why does his name stand above all others in music? And not just in classical music, why do jazz players love Bach? Why do writers, why do authors love Bach? Why, even when you ask ChatGPT, does ChatGPT say Bach is number one? And no one is expecting a quick answer like, oh, it's because he was the first to write in all 24 keys. That helps, but it's not so satisfying. And it might not be possible to say exactly why and how Bach is number one, because we have to live with the music. We have to play a hundred pieces by, by Vivaldi and then a hundred more by Handel and then still a hundred more by Bach before we even get a sense of what's going on. And then to distill that experience into words is not really going to be easy because it's music, it's not words. But whenever I try and answer this question, why Bach 
and not Vivaldi, Weibach, and not others, I'm reminded of, of a clip of one of the greatest musicians that ever lived, who seems to get pretty close to the core of things. So let's run that first clip, uh, Dominic. Yeah, kunt u mij uitleggen, en ik, ik weet dat het een moeilijke vraag is, en misschien is hij niet eens te beantwoorden, maar goed, laat ik het toch maar doen. Wat de magie van Bach nou precies is? Als we dat wisten konden wij ook zo componeren als hij. Het is echt een mirakel. Men kan analyseren en dan constateren... Ja, maar daar heb je nog niks aan. Hè? Nee. Uh, wel, als je het dan vergelijkt met andere componisten... zie je dat er verschillen zijn. En daar ligt het dan wel in, maar dat je ontroerd wordt... en dat het zo organisch is. Terwijl Bach eigenlijk een heel onregelmatig componist is. Het gaat niet volgens het boekje. Hij doet de vreemdste dingen en eigenlijk altijd is hij onverwacht. Ik heb wel eens met, met leerlingen vroeger een, een proefje gedaan. Uh, een, een, bijvoorbeeld een deel van de kantaten die zij niet kenden. Daar heb ik uh, drie maten van weggeplakt. En ik vraag, nou wat zou daar hebben kunnen gestaan? Uh, gestaan hebben? Onmogelijk. Ik zou dat ook niet kunnen doen, hè? Dus men is gewoon, zelfs drie maanden lang kan men niet reconstrueren. Als je het zelf met Hendel doet, dan, nou, dan is het altijd raak, geloof ik. Dat vind je wel. Hè? Maar wacht eens. Dat is ook een heel ongewoon, maar het is natuurlijk. Dat is een mirakel. Ja. Dat is niet te verklaren. Nee, dus dat, dat, dat is het. Oké, okay, so that's Gustav Leonhardt, uh, the great conductor, musicologist, harpsichordist. He's saying essentially Bach is very unusual. I don't know if it, if it was possible to read the subtitles, I'll just summarize what was going on. The interviewer was saying, why Bach? And Leonhardt says, well, it's a miracle. It's very unnatural, but it's, it's very unusual, but it's natural. It's a miracle that cannot be explained. And he says he does a test with his students where he pastes over three bars of a, of a piece that they don't know. And he says, okay, reconstruct the three bars. And he says that he can't do it and his students can't do it. And uh, I suggest you might try it with a Bach piece that you don't know. He says with Handel, maybe you would always get the solution. But, but why? Again, it can't be explained according to Leonhardt, it's a miracle. But for the sake of this talk, we're not you know, satisfied with miracles. And we're just gonna say, okay, it's a miracle. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in. We, we're gonna look at how Bach gave his music to the world. That is literally how he published his music, how he readied his music for his pupils, for his own children, and see if we can take away some of the ideas that seem to go beyond the notes themselves. And maybe uh, if we can't find a convincing answer of why Bach is number one, we could at least have some ideas that might influence our thinking about music going forward. When I look at Bach, and how he put his music into the world, I come away with the idea that Bach's music is always exploding outward. Bach explodes outward. If I have to explain his influence, it's this. It's just explosive. It expands. It doesn't turn inward toward the personality, toward the person of Bach. It goes the other way. It goes out toward all that was around him and all that he had access to. And we see it in the way that people write about Bach. I recently read on the podcast an article about Bach written by Donald Francis Tovey, the great British musicologist. Maybe some of you have, have heard of Tovey. He claims that Bach's place in music is thus higher than that of a reformer or an inventor of new forms. He's a surveyor of all musical time in existence to whom it is not the smallest importance whether a thing be old or new as long as it is true. So higher than that of a reformer, not an inventor of new forms. He's just a surveyor. Uh, and it doesn't matter if a thing is old or new, as long as it's 
as long as it's got validity. So we see here with, uh, with Tavi's idea that Bach is a surveyor looking into new forms, reaching into the old. He's got the, the Janus face on that, that looks into the past and to the future, again, exploding outward. And it might also help us to understand the idea of Bach's expansive mind if we try and contextualize not just Bach, but the average Baroque composer when compared to others in history. And in order to do that, we have to compare Bach to, to other composers, even though they died only some 75 years apart and some 400 kilometers apart. The difference between Bach's day and Beethoven's day couldn't have been more different. So one of the most illuminating ways I've found to realize the mindset of a person, of a great composer right in the thick of such a great musical time like the Baroque, actually came from a book about painting. Uh, David Hockney wrote a book about Renaissance, Renaissance painters using lenses and mirrors. His book studies how the great painters were using these sort of primitive cameras to help their paintings along. And this theory shocked critics who found that there was something sacrilegious in it, almost as if saying, how dare these painters rely on anything other than their sheer genius? How could they cheat using technology? And now I quote Hockney. Hockney says, Raphael would have wanted to make as vivid a portrait as he could. As a professional painter, he had a job to do and would have used all the tools at his disposal, including if they thought they would help lenses. He would not think, I'm a great artist at the height of the Renaissance who should disdain such methods. So I love that. It's the denial of one's ego entering into the equation. And this is not only Raphael or Bach. This is really what it was to be the thick of any sort of uh, musician in any sort of renaissance. It was not thinking about their, not thinking about themselves as an artist, but as a competent professional. And here we have maybe the seed of Bach not retreating inward into who he was, but exploding outward because there's no expressing your voice, no grappling with the muse. Uh, this image that we all have of composers, I want to actually quickly play the opening part of a movie called My Name is Bach. Uh, it's a more or less recent film, which in my mind showcases exactly what we wish a genius like Bach were. So let's roll uh, video two. Okay, so here is a clip of Bach walking in the rain, the actor portraying Bach. And he's weighed down by his own genius. He's staggering under the weight and the loftiness of his thoughts until he stares up at the heavens, rips off his wig and lets out a scream. So I always find that, that idea very, very funny, actually. It's us looking through our modern lens at an artist in the Baroque, hoping that somehow the visions of the creative person will align, but really they won't. Bach was not the slightest bit concerned with the fight between the individual and the muse. This, this shaking your fist up at heaven on the deathbed was still a hundred years off. Bach was really interested in doing everything to the furthest possible extent in every field that came through 18th century Germany, which is to say practically everything. This was such a height of musical proficiency, instrument testing, instrument building, tuning, performing, teaching, composing, performing others' music, transcribing others' music. The list is, is again, exploding. It's expansive, the, these duties. We have, for example, we have actual documents 
from Bach that show his extensive knowledge of how to build organs. He traveled around Germany and he has these incredible organ reviews. He says, this, this organ, this chest needs to be rebuilt here. This wind chamber needs to be attached to this and these pipes need to be coupled to this. I actually just, one of the episodes on the podcast, I just read these organ reviews because the, the knowledge is, is, is astounding of his expertise. It's a bit different today. Musicians tend to not only specialize in one instrument, but you don't really see pianists tuning their own instruments or violinists, cellists making repairs to their own instruments, but such a divide would have been inconceivable to musicians in the Baroque. And a Baroque musician might have seen the current standard of one person making an instrument, one person tuning the instrument, another person playing yet another person's music on the instrument. Well, look, uh, comparisons are odious, we could say, but we could at least agree that there's something in Bach's knowledge of the construction of instruments that allows him to go beyond, to expand, to explode, and write music that continues to define the capability of the instruments he wrote for into even future times. We've got some set and setting of the 18th century Baroque composer, so now let's look at some specific instrumental works and the philosophies reflected in it. So we will start with the keyboard works, and then move on to the works for violin and cello, and then finally cover the so-called uh, lute suites. Now, Bach's students, his greatest students, are probably his own children, and if Bach had any interest in teaching anyone music, he had an interest in teaching his own sons, and thus perpetuating the largest family tree of musicians Europe ever knew. So, we start with the pieces he wrote for his eldest son, Wilhelm Friedmann. And when these pieces appear in the WF notebook, they don't appear as the inventions and symphonias, but rather the preludiums and fantasias. Uh, but these, in fact, are the inventions we know today. And everyone who studies even a little bit of classical music, you know, knows. So let's look first at the, at the title, uh, the title page of the notebook for WF, that's slide two. These are where the pieces first appear. So we, there we see Klavierbüchlein um, von Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, 1720. And here is the piece we know as Invention 1, first called Preludium 1, that's slide 3. And there we see the, the recognizable music of the first invention. And now slide 4 is the first Sinfonia, or three-part invention. As you could see, it says Fantasia up there. And Bach takes these pieces out of the notebook for WF. He brushes them up a bit. He redoes the order in which they appear. Here's a bit of Bach trivia. They first, the inventions first appear as C major, D minor, E minor, F major, G major, uh, A minor, then B minor, and then back down. B flat major, A major, G minor, F minor, uh, E major, E flat major, D major, and C minor, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm apologizing for my terribly out of tune piano. But anyway, so Bach takes these pieces out of the notebook. He, he does the order we now know, C major, C minor, D major, D minor, etc. He retitles them, but he doesn't call them two and three part inventions. Neither does he call them inventions or symphonias. And this, this, for me, I can't stress this enough. He calls this collection of the Inventions and Symphonias the Aufrichtige Anleitung, the honest method, the upright or honest method. And I, I think that we should all call these pieces this. We don't play the Inventions and Symphonias. We call them the honest method. And here's the title page. This is slide five. 
of the honest method. So uh, it's difficult to read, not only because it's in 18th century German, but the ink from the music is actually eating away on the page. But you can see there it says up top, Aufrichtige Anleitung, and then this flowery description, which I will now translate into English on slide six. There we go, upright method, wherein lovers of the clavier, especially those desirous of learning, are shown a clear way, not only one, to learn and play clearly in two voices, but also after further progress, two, to deal correctly with three obligato parts. Furthermore, at the same time, not only to have, in good, not only to have good inventions, but to develop the same well, and above all, to arrive at a singing style of playing. I think that's cantabile in the, in the original and at the same time acquire a strong foretaste of composition. Okay, now, if you speaking of beautiful writing on Bach, one of my favorite books is that of Albert Schweitzer. Um, remind me to talk about Albert Schweitzer if you're interested in the question and answer, because a fascinating man. But uh, this quote from his Bach biography, I loved it so much, I put it on an entire wall of one of my Bach stores. So here's slide seven. And this is him talking about that dedication page in the Inventions and Sinfonias. He says, uh, if the average modern musician, sorry, I gotta zoom in it again. If the average modern musician, in spite of his possessing less theoretical knowledge of the technique of composition than those in Bach's day, has, at any rate, a distinction between true and false art, it is primarily due to these little works of Bach. Speaking of the Inventions and Sinfonias. He says, the child who has once practiced them, no matter how mechanically has acquired a perception of part writing, he will never lose. He will always instinctively look for the same masterly weaving of the voices in every other piece of music and feel the poverty of the music where this is lacking. So that really, I think, showcases well how Bach's you know, very humble description really went past the, the humble expression of, you know, arrive at a cantabile style. He's saying that if people today, if they know the difference between true and false art, it's because of these inventions. So um, if we go back, uh, sorry, Dominic, to slide six, we'll see there, there are also dedications on the well-tempered clavier and the Orgelbüsch line. Um, maybe we can read those later, but, you know, they, they, they show that it's, they don't stop with the notes. They, they go beyond the notes and it seeks to inspire the student to go beyond the notes themselves and to become a composer uh, themselves. So this is how Bach appears as a teacher. These three collections, Well-Tempered Clavier, The Upright Method and The Orgelbüsch Line, these are to be passed on to his students. They're proprietary pieces copied out only by trusted individuals. But let's look at how Bach would have appeared to the world with his published works, because published music really starts with Opus 1, which for Bach is his six keyboard partitas. Now, he doesn't call them the six partitas. He instead calls it keyboard exercise or keyboard practice, clavier übung, uh, consisting of Alemann partitas and other galantieren, I think he says. Uh, we'll pull up the original print, that's slide eight. And you'll see that this looks a bit different from the other, uh, from the upright method, because this is no longer calligraphy. This is actually engraved physically into copper plates. That's how the printing was done. That's the difference between the publication and what's known as a fair copy. 
So again, he doesn't call them the six partitas. He calls them practice, exercise, almost evoking that there's no such thing as, as really a finished piece. Everything is a means to an end. This is just practice. This is just exercise. Even such a polished piece as the six partitas, they're, they're just exercise. And notice he doesn't specify the instrument. We can imagine it's a, a single manual harpsichord, maybe a double manual harpsichord. We can imagine it's a clavichord here. It's just clavier, which is a, a gesamtwort, a, um, a collective word for any keyboard instrument. But in keyboard practice two, which appears some years later, that's slide nine, uh, we have two pieces, a concerto in the Italian style and an overture in the French style. And Bach does specify, you see there in the middle of it, he says, for um, clavicembalo mitzvayen manuelen. That's right in the middle of there. He says that's for a harpsichord with two manuals. We'll move on. Klavierübung three, still appearing later, is the organ mass. This is all parts of the Lutheran mass set to music on the organ. And keyboard practice, Klavierübung four, finally appearing late in his life is today what we call the Goldberg Variations. And he specifies, again, the double manual harpsichord. So for time's sake, I'm not going to go really deeply into any of these collections, but let's just take the surveying uh, mode and let's graze the surface. And I think we can see what's going on in Bach's mind. Klavier Übung, this title, is that of Bach's predecessor. Uh, his predecessor was Johann Kunau, who, public, who, who preceded him in Leipzig, um, and this was Kunau's first Klaverübung publication himself, were six partitas. Uh, we can pull that one up. That's from 1689. That's slide 10. And there you see Klaverübung, uh, Johann Kunau. There he is with a harpsichord and some laurel reefs and nice flowery decorations. And then the next page, slide 11, already looks very similar to uh, what we saw with Bach's own Klavierübung, you know, even, even the style. So we see that Klavierübung 1 is a nod to his predecessor, saying, I see you, I now have your job, I respect you, here is my take on your work. And now I'm going further in Klavierübung 2. The Italian concerto and the French overture, that's the most current secular music that he can get. It's outside of Germany. It's the Italian concerto style seen in Bach's day and French courtly music. So that's what's happening today for Bach in music outside of Germany, outside the church. And then Klavierübung three, we go into the church, into Germany, and the keyboard instrument here, notice, is the organ. In this book, we have sort of a whole mini summary of all church music. We have pieces in the so-called old style, pieces for just the manuals alone. Uh, just for the hands. And then we have many pieces using two keyboards and the pedals, so three keyboards at once. And here in this book, we unite theology with music. And sonically in this, in this uh, piece, there's even four pieces in the collection, the four duets. They're about the most avant-garde pieces ever written. So even within keyboard three, we have sort of looking back into the past and looking forward in the future, but we must move on. Klavierübung four, the, the Goldberg Variations, this is a realm this is a nod to the realm of the theoretical and the mathematical sciences. Bach was, was interested in the sciences and maths, etc. And it might seem today like a contradiction that such a staunch Christian was interested in the newest scientific discoveries, but such contradictions didn't really exist in Bach's time. Newton was publishing his theories of gravity right around the time when Bach was born, and Newton himself didn't see any reason to have his groundwork of modern physics 
contradict anything of his own Christian faith. But anyhow, on the back of Bach's personal copy of the Goldberg Creations, that is keyboard practice four, which is slide 12, you see this very cramped writing. This is sort of wild. This is the back of Bach's personal print of it. And if we zoom in, which is slide 13, we will zoom in, interestingly enough, to slide 13. Very synchronized. And that is the same piece of music that Bach is holding in the picture, which is slide 14, which happens to be Bach's number. I did not plan all this in advance. And then uh, we all know this painting. This is the famous Hausmann painting that he had made in order to join this mathematical society. And we zoom in on the paper, which is slide 15, and we see that that is actually the same piece of music on the back of the Goldberg variations that I showed two slides ago. So this is the link from keyboard practice four to uh, being interested in the maths and the science. So you have the four big books of keyboard music he publishes. If you just look at it, exploding into the past and the future, a nod to his predecessors, a nod to the current courtly music, the secular music, a nod to the current church music uniting art and theology, a nod to the sciences uniting his art with technology and perhaps even music to come. And very important, possibly most important, is that all of this is not on one keyboard instrument, but probably on three, probably the clavichord, harpsichord, and the organ. And so to a keyboard player, to be a proficient keyboard player to Bach, it meant all of these instruments. So what we've done here is really without even looking at the notes in the music, we see how Bach's ideas are already transcending. And to me, this is, this is pretty remarkable. I don't think you can do this with other composers, just graze the surface and see such deep philosophy reflected. Um, but, but there you have it. So we're at more or less our halfway point. And now we're going to switch over to the violin and the cello works, unless there are objections or contradictions or any problems with there the There are none. I, I think we're all very much enjoying. Thank you so much, Evan. Cool. Okay, great. So um, now we're switching over to the, to the string works. In 1720, Bach gives us what he calls say solo. We can pull up this page. This is 16. And we're looking again for clues in Bach's thinking. This is the title page for the violin works. It says here in Italian, six solos for violin without bass accompaniment, book one, libro primo, there it says. Uh, he signs it, he dates it, and uh, without bass accompaniment simply means without a continuo, without a group of musicians filling out chords and bass lines, a lute perhaps, a keyboard, a gamba, they were not to play along. The violin in this book is explored in depth. It defines pretty much from A to Z what the instrument is capable of, and not until someone like Paganini do we have anyone who's able to add more entries to Bach's violin encyclopedia, and even then they sort of come as, as footnotes. Um, today we call this encyclopedia, as I'm calling it, we call them the sonatas and partitas for solo violin. But I think, again, like we sort of rebranded the inventions and symphonias to the honest method, I'm voting that we rebrand this one Libro Primo in the study of string technique. And we as good Bachians have to ask, what was Libro Secundo? Libro Secundo is certainly the cello suites. The reason there's any doubt in anyone's mind to Libro Secundo is because we lack this page. We lack this exact autograph title page, and in fact, the entire autograph score for the cello suites. But it's, it's very neat. We have Say Solo Book One, the violin works, the sonatas and partitas for solo violin. And we have the Say Solo Book Two. Those are the cello suites. 
But it's important to note that again, for the consummate Baroque musician, they would have played both books on not two, but three instruments again. So what am I talking about here? Three instruments. This might upset some cellists, uh, but it needn't. I'm constantly playing Bach on the wrong instrument, the piano. Uh, but this probably won't come as a shock to others. Uh, the recent scholarship suggests that the cello suites, that is book two, Libro Secundo, would have also been played on the shoulder. Not a cello between the legs, but for an instrument on the shoulder called the violoncello de spalla. That's shoulder, spalla. And here is a picture, slide 17, of one of the leading musicians of the so-called historic revival movement. Uh, let's soak in that face for a second. That is definitely someone who knows his Bach. That is uh, Sigiswald Kuiken. Uh, he's, he comes from a family of, of Baroque musicians, an absolute beast if you, if you haven't heard this man play. I would say he's a violinist, but again, he also plays the violoncello de Spala. He is the consummate string player that plays both books. And if we think about that, Libro Primo and Libro Secundo start to make sense. Not dissimilar to the keyboard practice being written for various keyboard instruments. And one could imagine that today, playing both books of the six solo is something like playing the violin works on the violin and then the cello suites on the viola. Hence, in order to complete your study of the six solo, you need to be more, you need to expand, you need to explode past a violinist and you need to be the string player who can play this bigger violin. And uh, we should use this idea because Bach wanted all of the music in the cello suites in the Chaconne. He wanted all the string players to play this music and not just stick to our current almost rift between the violinist and the cellist, where cellists wouldn't dream about playing a violin partita. And I've yet to hear a violinist taking a stab at the cello suites, but why not? It sounds, sounds wonderful. Okay, so what about this third instrument that I mentioned? This refers to the sixth cello suite, famously written on an instrument for five strings. And slide 18 is a picture of a very happy person playing the violoncello de Spala. There you see with five strings. Um, quite, a, quite an impressive looking, looking instrument. Okay, so just again, uh, as in keyboard practice, to be a proficient keyboardist, we needed the clavichord, harpsichord, and organ. To be proficient in this department, we need violin, bigger violin, and biggest violin. And again, this idea of going from smaller to biggest, we see Bach exploding just in the instrumentation, but not only in the instrumentation, in the key scheme as well. So now we're gonna go back and look at the keys to the violin works of book one. The key scheme, the six solo works in book one are G minor. I'm so sorry for the tuning. Uh, I don't know how that happened. G minor, B minor, a minor, D minor, C major, and E major. But if we rearrange these notes into the circle of fifths, we have the four open strings of the violin, but we also have two fifths above and below the instrument. So C, G, D, A, E, B. So even in the key scheme, we see the image of the violin sort of expanding beyond itself, exploding outward. So what about book two? Well, the first four cello suites are in standard tuning on an instrument with four strings. But then in the fifth suite, Bach begins to break the instrument. So the fifth suite is now tuned scordatura. The top note is changed from A to G. We can, we can already hear that even on the piano, the resonance is, is different with the octave G, with the C. 
we have this fifth suite. Already we see a theological shift. We see Bach, the Christian. We see the death of Christ in this suite. And this is not just my idea, but this is an idea that many people have written about. This is the suite where the cello is broken, and we see the broken body of Christ on the cross in the middle of this fifth suite. We hear the cross all over the place in the Sarabande. Here's an image of the Sarabande here. This is slide 19. So we'll see um, an, uh, this, these are these are all these, these crosses, these notes crossing over one another. This is the center movement of the fifth suite, the broken, the broken suite. So Christ dies at the end of the fifth suite, near the end of the second book of the sixth solo collection, but then in the very last one, in the sixth suite, we have not only resurrection, the string tuned back to an A, but we have something like eternal life, like better than life, the risen cello, a new improved string instrument, a third instrument now with a fifth string. And musically, this sixth suite is the most, uh, it's the most musically ambitious of all six. It's the longest, its range is from low C, cello C, to one G above the top line on the treble clef, and that range is actually a full fifth, bigger than any of the works for violin. And so we have, again, that image of Bach exploding, expanding on many levels from the key scheme, which explodes out of the violin to the sixth suite exploding out of the tomb that was the fifth suite, as it were, and, uh, and the sixth suite being the biggest of all, you know, the instruments even, even getting bigger. So that, that's the briefest look of the Say Solo, both books of the Say Solo. And because there are guitarists and lautists or lutists here, we're going to quickly cover the lute works. Um, the debate is about the instrumentation for these truly wonderful works. I'm actually uh, Instagramming these lute suites right now on, on my stories on the WTF Bach Instagram. And these, I, I absolutely love these pieces. Um, I'm not gonna weigh in on the debate of the instrumentation, but I would just like to mention that probably the question of instrumentation varies from work to work, but we could still take a nice idea of these works even if we don't even talk about the instrumentation. Um, and that is that two of the works for lute are arrangements from pieces in the sixth solo, the fifth cello suite, the broken suite we just discussed, and the final violin partita. And uh, one, one piece even bears the inscription for lute or harpsichord, uh, one piece, the C minor lute suite, is probably a hybrid composition written at different times, probably even written for more than one instrument at those different times. So this is Bach's mindset, the instrumentation, where in certain cases it might be extremely important or relevant. It doesn't seem to be paramount in other pieces. The E major partita, if we, if we look at this, um, it seems to be such idiomatic violin writing, you know this stuff? That, you know, that, that barrelage on sort of the open strings, you would think that's so typically violin. But again, this piece transcribed for organ in one of his cantatas, and here again for lute or lute harpsichord, the A minor violin sonata, we have a fantastic transcription for harpsichord. The first violin fugue, the G minor, is masterfully done 
in, a, in D minor in a five voice fugue for organ. So if we are going to give the briefest of nods to the lute repertoire, whether or not you're playing this on a gut string harpsichord or a lute or even a telecaster, the idea is make your own transcription and get into the music and go outward beyond the instrumentation. Um, we know from copies in Bach's circle and from his first biographer that the master himself loved to play his string works on keyboard instruments. And we have a great tradition of keyboard players from Leonhardt himself, who you saw earlier, to Robert Hill, who do the same. They make the transcriptions and we should continue in that vein. And I think hopefully this should give us some ideas how we can take Bach's long-term thinking, apply it to our own music. And let's see, a conclusion? I don't know. If, if, if uh, as a violinist, you've set yourself a lifelong goal of playing the, the six, the three sonatas and the three partitas, don't stop there. Um, intelligence in music is making connections between the works and the more alamans that you play, the more you'll realize that there is sort of a, a style in which to play an aleman. And I think I'll stop there and thanks for listening and we can go on to some questions now. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Evan. Um, so we do have a series of questions that I do want to get to. So. Uh, everyone in the in the chat, feel free to um, write some questions, but we have some pre-stream questions that um, I would like to ask. Well, I'll be going across all platforms. I'll start with the piano platform. There was a question uh, from Chris. What kinds of adjustments do you make when you play Bach on three different instruments, harpsichord, clavichord, and piano? Do you have to focus ultimately on one, or can you play all three equally without one negatively affecting the others? Um, thanks for the question. It is, um, it is sort of what we said about, about being the consummate keyboard player. You should probably, there's, you're not going to become a worse pianist if you start playing the clavichord or the harpsichord, in fact, it's probably going to, to help. I would say the, the clavichord is more similar to the piano. Uh, it uses hammers, but the harpsichord is indeed very different, notably, not, not really in the fact that it doesn't inflect, but in the fact that when you drop the key, when you lift off the key, there is a sort of a double note. So there's, there's a double information. So if you roll a chord, when, when you drop it, you will hear very soft. And so you need, you, need to, you need to play the release action on a harpsichord in a way that you don't on, on other instruments. And that's a, that's a profound realization to have when all of a sudden you have to, when you start having to pay twice as much attention to every single note on the harpsichord. And, you know, thinking about that when, when carried over into the world of piano playing, I mean, that's, that's absolutely going to help your piano playing along. Um, clavichord playing is, is a revelation in terms of fingering. Per personal, uh, personally, for me, I, I almost refingered every piece after, after playing the clavichord in, in Bach because you, you don't need to rely on this, um, I want to call it like a German-centric um, one, two, three scalar playing. But actually, you know, for, for Bach, the major scale was three, four, three, four, three, four, three, four, like this. And you can, you can do that on clavichord and, and it's, it's quite fast and elegant. And if you can start doing that on the piano, you'll be maybe pleased with the result. Interesting. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to go now to the guitar platform. There's a question more general. Um, <clears throat> From Mark, 
Any pointers as to where to find more info on box music for a relative newbie? Do you have any recommendations in terms of online courses? Could be WTF Bach podcast, but do you have other uh, resources that you might suggest for someone newbie online course? I, I don't know books. <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously, I'm gonna uh, self promote and talk about my Instagram and my and my podcast, but um, the way to do it hasn't changed since 1720 when when Bach was doing it himself. Um, you you get the honest method, you get the Orgelbüchlein, you get whatever, and you just simply tick off the pieces one by one. And I think you'll be surprised to to just see how how your your own opinion and estimation of the changes uh, of the piece changes over time. And um, I think I think that's probably the best way to do it is just really get in the get in the music yourself. There's not too much that is that is there you know the the bwv that's the bach number catalog they only go from you know around 770 to to a thousand for for the keyboard works uh so you know that's i know that sounds like a lot but it's it's only 230 works you know it's not it's not it's not endless so uh so maybe just pick a pick a bwv number and and, and go with it sounds good sounds good and uh, I, I guess for guitar, uh, he, I guess there's the lute works. That, I don't know how many of those were, but but um, I'm sure you could you could find them. So yeah, there's there's five five lute suites uh, and uh, a prelude for lute. Um. Um, that's that maybe maybe start there with that one. And and the there are famous transcriptions for the of the cello suites. Um, I forget who is the famous transcriber of the cello suites for guitar, but there are those. Um, so that would be a good place to start with the five lute suites and the um, and the cello suites. Bob the Blob has a has a um, he has a question. Hi Evan, uh, Bob's by the way a pianist. Hi Evan, if Telemann wrote more pieces than Bach, why was Bach more famous? Well, it does seem like today. Evans made a huge case for for this about all the information he shared with us, um, and and then on top of that, uh, in in that direct comparison to, comparison to Telemann, Bob is saying, if Bach is the beginning and the end of all music, how do you find maybe Schenberg's music in Bach or vice versa? So I I, I don't know um, if you have any uh, opinions on the comparisons between Telemann and Bach. Or if you have any opinions on the comparisons between, I guess, Schoenberg and Bach. That's kind of what Bob is asking. Schoenberg is an Arnold Schoenberg? Yes, okay. Arnold um, Schoenberg, yes. Um, well, I, I happen to love Schoenberg's music. Um, it is maybe more based in an aesthetic that reflects a, a particular place in history that doesn't quite reach out as much as Bach's music did. Um, probably most most definitely everyone watching their favorite composer is not Bach, but that's not you know it's not really about favorites. It's about sort of the 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 influence, the impact that that he had. And as for, as for Telemann, um, Telemann was more famous than Bach in 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 Bach's day. So the fact that Bach is more famous now probably relates to some of the quality of, of the music that throughout these hundreds of years, people have repeatedly gone back and they found something there that is worth uh, repeating. You know, in music, as in other arts, 
from centuries ago, the cream really does float to the top. Um, th there's not a good chance that there's some unknown composer that we still haven't discovered yet and they just haven't made, they didn't have the, uh, you know, the social media following or whatever to, to bring their music out there. It's really the, the, the cream floats to the top, like I say, because that's where the money was and that's, that's where the workshop was. And it, it wasn't necessarily about talent. It was about having a workshop and having money and, and access to, to the proper instruments and technology and things like that. So I, I suppose that maybe that helps answer something. I'm not really sure if it did though. Sorry. No, no, no. Thank you for that. Um, we have some other questions, uh, some live questions now. So Harriet, um, <clears throat> Harriet's asking, what do you think of playing the violin solo pieces on the cello transposed a fifth down? So the open string, strings, etc., are the same. Some people say, yes, good idea. Others say, no, it's not a good, good idea. Harriet says, playing them in the same key as on the violin is possible, but very awkward. So I guess what Harriet's asking about is about tuning down uh, the cello a fifth to, to play the the violin pieces I, I don't know if you have any experience with no i think she's i think she's is, is she asking to play the cello suites on the violin or play the violin stuff on playing the cello? violin solo pieces on the cello oh on the cello yeah no of course uh, absolutely i mean again with the with the six solo that's the idea um you're not a cellist you're a string player and you play all the string instruments and um fine if today you know you you are a cellist and you can't play the violin you absolutely have to play the violin music um and transcriptions usually by the way do go down a fifth um you will see that the it, the violin concerti and the harpsichord concerti they are usually a fifth apart uh, in the transcriptions i mentioned the a minor violin sonata being transcribed for in d minor on the harpsichord and the c minor cello suite goes into G minor. So that is usually the way to do it when you're transcribing. Absolutely do it. I mean, I would love to hear the, um, well, any of the violin works on, on the cello. It would be, it would be great. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I would too. Um, so we have uh, some other questions. Jack Stewart is asking a huge question that maybe you can uh, consolidate. <laughs> Jack's uh, saying, I would like to hear your impressions on how much to ornament in Bach. Admittedly, a huge topic, he specifies. Any quick thoughts about ornamentation, which is a lecture unto its own, I know. <laughs> yeah, um, well, so, well, okay, so the, the answer whenever you're talking about Bach is, um, do you want to do what was being done in Bach's time? And, and if yes, then follow this road. And if no, then whatever. But let's, let's pursue what was done in Bach's time. The answer is all over the place. I mean, so much so that like you wouldn't even be able to recognize certain pieces. Like uh, we have his own, we have his students' copies of the French suites of the three-part inventions or the symphonias as they're called, um, and something like this, the the F minor symphonia, uh, is just ornamented everywhere so that this characteristic motive would be going. It just becomes absolutely uh, beyond what's on the page. And we have the, the image that Bach was, was ornamenting at every possible second, nonstop. I mean, it is the Baroque after all. It, there's so much structure underneath, but the Baroque is all about the frilly stuff and their architecture and their clothing. I mean, that is truly what the Baroque is. So the answer is everywhere. 
just everywhere. Interesting. And then a question of taste and a question of how-to and a question of uh, understanding what is appropriate and what's not. That's a whole other probably topic, I, I assume. But to just, just to follow that up, um, are, are you – so it seems like you're pretty liberal in terms of how much ornamentation. But does it happen where you're listening to someone and you say, well, that's just wrong? Or do you ever say that, like, where you're listening to someone ornament and you're just like, that, that doesn't make any sense? Or uh, there are rules. Am I, am I – Am I, am I right? Yeah, um, I would say there are taste. It's again anything within taste. But taste is hard to define. But sure, you can. You can. Um, for example, uh, Gould famously in his uh, Goldberg creations on the E minor chord in the aria, he rolls it down, uh, whatever it is, and that that's you know wrong. Uh, <laughs> it's it's you know I mean it's it's um it's great because it's it's Gould and it's you know it's it's personal but but typically things you know don't roll down they roll they roll up and um, uh, sometimes I hear players um, maybe ornamenting a leap of a fifth like you know with with a sort of a, a scale or something like that that's not not very. Um, authentic you know i mean of course it's 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 a tricky subject but um yeah i mean taste has to govern govern everything and um you get a sense of what's wrong and what's right the more you play every single piece and then you just sort of develop a sense for these things of course of course wonderful um john obviously a pianist is asking any comments on the use of sustain pedal for bach on the piano any thoughts on that yeah. Okay. So I was um, I was tagged in um, in the recent video as as being a, a dissenter, saying that I don't um, use pedal in Bach. It's not really true. I mean, you are playing the piano, so so use the piano uh, and and use the pedal. But learn how to do it without the pedal first, because that is going to you're going to understand if you can't do it without the pedal. Um, then you're then something is wrong, right? So you you should have to first be able to do it convincingly without the pedal, and then make the decision. You know how can the pedal be tasteful here? There the the piano, by the way, is slightly bigger than the harpsichord in terms of the width of the keys. So there are a few places, like in the actually we were talking about this earlier in the thirteenth contrapuntus of the Art of Fugue, where there's a chord that is like ridiculously big. You can just barely reach it on the uh, harpsichord. So you have to you have to use the pedal there. Um, the you know the end of the A minor fugue of book one um, requires probably the use of some pedal or some clever re reorchestrating. Um, but you know use use the pedal, but be aware that it's you know a, <laughs> I don't know be aware that it's like butter or something you know like you use sparingly right delicious but maybe not so great for you I don't know. I, I, I totally hear you. Yeah, box supposed to be healthy, right? <laughs> no, but I, of course the pedal can be beautiful. I mean, so, but that, that, that's an eternal question, right? But it's nice to hear that um, you mentioned that maybe start without the pedal. Because again, theoretically, the harpsichord has no pedal and you, theoretically the fingers should be able to somewhat do all the legati and et cetera. So, um, and, and then the pedal can be added for taste. Um, Anonymous is asking... Uh, <clears throat> Expanding on the other questions, would love to hear your opinion on dynamics and rubato 
and interpretation in general playing on a modern piano. But this could perhaps apply to also other instruments, not just the piano. Um, yeah, I, I mean, are, are dynamics and rubato, agogic accents, obviously, are, are, those, are those a big part of your playing? For example, I know some people talk about, you know, you take the repeat, you do different dynamics, you do different, you know, this or that. Are dynamics like an overrated thing that is, a, is, is applied only because of the modern instrument? Uh, do you think there's other tools at our disposal that are more important than dynamics? And then I'm wondering about your thoughts on rubato. So rubato um, is... We, we're almost certain that the Baroque musicians played with an enormous amount of rubato, like an enormous amount of rubato. And if you listen to someone like Robert Hill, um, sorry, there was a horn or something. If you listen to Robert Hill playing, uh, you'll see that there's just so much rubato going on that it's it's like it's it's amazing. It's like a great. Uh, it's a spoken thing. You you realize that even though the music is so rigid and so structurally sound on the page. Um, you know, everything is happening above it that, that goes beyond, that goes beyond that. So rubato is very important. As for dynamics, um, just because the harpsichord doesn't inflect, inflect doesn't mean that, you know, string instruments and wind instruments can't. So as far as dynamics, um, you know, when you play a phrase, you, you, you phrase it on, on a violin and you're playing on an instrument that doesn't inflect like the harpsichord or the organ, that should probably um, probably mimic mimic that you know because it is it is a living thing and um, harpsichord that's what Leonhardt called our poor instrument our poor instrument because it couldn't inflect it's not you know it's it's more or less a crutch it's not something that we 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 enjoy um, so yes of course dynamics are important I mean probably there is a limit to where where the authentic dynamics come in and where the modern dynamics come in and doing something like you know playing forte in the first half and piano on the repeat that's probably like a modern conception of bach maybe it's very effective yeah no, that, that makes sense i mean and of course the but i know there's some pieces right uh, God, i'm forgetting um is it the French overture that has the pieces called echo and you wonder like i mean is, is echo effect is that is that also is that too contrived, or do you know if back in the Baroque time there was that idea of, you know, call... I mean, I know call and response was always a, a deal with echo, literally echo. Or, or do you think the modern version of that's too extreme? Any thoughts on, like, echoing something? Well, so the, the echo, Bach has two of them uh, in the keyboard repertoire and then several more in the cantatas. Um, the, the echo is, is the second um, the second manual on the, uh, on the harpsichord, so... Lower half scored, higher half scored. Again, that that really was so you would, uh, you could you could play however hard or soft you want, but if you're scoring it right on the harpsichord, you get that effect naturally. So terrace dynamics are of course a thing in in Bach, and again in Clavier Ubung II, that's the French overture in the Italian concerto. He makes extensive use of those dynamics. Uh, very good. Let me see if I'm uh, missing any, but we might be uh, might be wrapping things up pretty soon. I'm going to double check uh, the chat now. I know that there's been a, a lot of activity there. Um, actually, Morgan has a kind of interesting question. This is more fun. Uh, if you knew you could only play one more hour of Bach on piano for the rest of your life, what piece or pieces would you pick? Art of the Fugue, Goldberg Variations, WTC. What, what would you play for your last hour of your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I I had that experience, actually. Not that I only had one hour left, but when I was doing the first Bach store, you know, I was doing 
uh, five hours a day. And, and I found that, you know, all the music, of course, interests me, but the late Bach is especially interesting to me. And that includes the uh, second book of the Well-Tempered Clavier, the Goldberg Variations, the Art of Fugue, um, the stuff from the musical offering, the, in fact, these two lute suites, the C minor, the E flat major. Um, you know, p pieces like pieces like that just so, are sort of um, they're anomalies in in music. So probably because the Well Tempered Clavier is in, in is in all twelve keys or all twenty four keys, uh, I would probably play um, you know the middle of book two. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. Nice, very good, very good. Um, let's see some other questions maybe. Um, <clears throat> Norman uh, has a question, a uh, comment maybe. I'm taking a class next semester in Bach's influence on jazz musicians. Do you have any insight on Bach's influence on jazz, Evan? Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I have a collection of quotes here um, from famous jazz musicians that uh, love Bach and just from famous people in general who love Bach. I'll pull that up real quick. Um, the one that I'm, I'm constantly thinking of is, is by Keith Jarrett, who says that he, he can always throw himself onto Bach because he knows that there's a kind of immediacy in Bach that never fails him. And he's throwing himself to this person saying, teach me something that, that I still don't know about music. Uh, and I love that because that, that is really the feeling that we have. Like when, when you just are up against a wall, you throw yourself on Bach and there's, there's something there. So let's see. Um, Miles, who, you know, famously um, has some pejorative comments about classical musicians. Uh, he's, he has a great quote about Bach. I started paying attention to Bach. I had begun to realize that some of the things Ornette Coleman had said about things being played three or four ways independently of each other were true because Bach had also composed that way and it could be real funky and down. Excuse me, Nina Simone, um, Maybe we're not going to call her a jazz musician, but she said, Bach made me dedicate my life to music. That's pretty profound. Uh, let's see here. Charlie Hayden, the great bass player. I used to listen to a lot of Bach on the radio, and when the basses started to sing, it made everything else make sense, make complete sense. Uh, let's see. I've got maybe... Let's see. Is there another one in here? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, oh, Mingus, Charles Mingus has one. Yeah. Oh, and this is actually one of my favorite quotes about Bach from Mingus. He says, creativity is more than just being different. Anybody can play weird. That's easy. What's hard is to be as simple as Bach, making this simple, awesomely simple. That's true creativity. I'll, I'll read it again because I think it's, I think it's, you know, there's something so simple in this. But it's, you know, it's awesomely creative. Okay, creativity is more than just being different. Anyone can play weird, that's easy. What's hard to be is as simple as Bach, making the simple awesomely simple, that's creativity. That's Mingus. Evan, anything else you want to share with us before, uh, before we, we go for the, for the day? Find, find me everywhere. Um, and, uh, and, you know, play, oh, oh yes, and no, I, I, I do have one, something I want to say. Transpose Bach. 
That's what I want to say. That's the most severe medicine you can ever get in music is to transpose Bach. And I think that it just absolutely does wonders for your brain and for your ears and for, for, for everything. I found that if, if I'm making a mistake in a Bach piece, like if I can't exactly figure out what's going on, if I play the subject, if I play it in transposition, I'll make the same mistakes in transposition, which, you know, tells you something about the way that you think. So yeah, play Bach in transposition, it's, um, it's good for you. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it would be. Wow. Well, thank you for that homework. Uh, and everyone, uh, thanks for joining today. Thanks a lot. We've really enjoyed having Evan. It's been a thoroughly enjoying uh, afternoon here in Los Angeles for me. Um, cheers, Evan. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Check out Evan on his website and Instagram. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. This, this is, is WTF. Share this podcast with your friends. Don't, Don't listen to this podcast alone. Um, become a patron of WTF Bach or donate on PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. All, All relevant, relevant links are, are found in the episode description. description. <laughs> this is WTF Bach. <laughs> oh.